Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Whoever said January was a dumping ground for horror was, well, only half right. Historically, that may have been the case, but over the past few years, that notion has been disproven time and time again, with quality genre flicks not entirely unlike director Gerard Johnstone's 2023 AI cautionary tale, Megan. The film follows Katie, played by Violet McGraw, who's adopted by her aunt Gemma, played by Allison Williams, after her parents are killed in an accident. Compounding the stressors of a sudden guardianship, Gemma, a roboticist, makes the rash decision to prioritize her pet project Megan, a child-sized AI-powered doll. While Megan's role as a house helper for Katie begins promisingly enough, Megan's self-awareness begins to conflict with Gemma's intended programming, thus making Gemma's role as a guardian redundant. And joining me this week to chat Killer Dolls, Parental Relationships, and PG-13 Horror is returning friend of the show and freelance writer for sites such as Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, and Manor Vellum, Mr. Matt Kanopka. Matt, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Excited to talk about my favorite movie of 2023. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point in the year we're at, right? Where it's like, we've only ever seen maybe a handful of new films at this point in the year. And, you know, as I said in the intro... Uh, while the trend has been changing recently over the last you know five or so years, yeah. January has not always been uh, prescribed a lot of great or memorable films, whether they be horror or otherwise. Um, but I think films like Megan are proving that that is changing for the better. Oh, for sure. I mean, this this January by itself, we've got Megan, Skinnerink, uh, <laughs> uh, Sick, which I watched the other day, which is pretty decent. You know, it it it. I, I'm glad that we're killing the idea that January is a dumping ground because there are always horror movies coming out during this month that are little gems, you know, that people skip out on because they think, oh, it got pushed to January. It must be crap. And I'm glad that we're sort of shattering that idea already. <laughs> yeah. You know, if anything, if I was a creative, I would view January as a space that's not particularly occupied with a lot of competition, right? Mm -hmm. I think that for something like Skinamarink, right, to come out and to be... I would say um, there's a lot of hype around it, but it is a fairly indie film that not a lot of people outside of maybe our niche circles uh, of horror are going to be talking about, right? But mm. if anything, the type of hype that that movie's been getting over the last few weeks, like who knows if that would have the same level of hype surrounding it if it was releasing against, you know, a lot bigger of projects later in the year when, oh. you know, we're so un inundated with them. Oh, couldn't agree more. I mean, if you happen to drop that in the summer, you know, we'd be talking about all the summer movies, right? But since but since Skinner is out here in January, where there's not really a lot surrounding it, you know, I have friends who like horror, but aren't really, you know, a part of our like super into it circles. <laughs> and and even they're going out to the theater to see Skinner you know? So I, I, I'm thrilled that it dropped when it did, because there are more people getting out to see that. And same with Megan. You know, Megan didn't have to compete. So <laughs> not that I think it would have, because, of course, it looked amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the film like Megan that now I've learned since uh, I was kind of in a media blackout for it after I'd seen that single gif of, you know, Megan dancing in the hallway. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see this because this looks like 
at least an entertaining time. You know, the verdict was still out apparently on, uh, you know, how scary it would end up being just based off of my not seeing a great deal of promotion for it or the trailers mm-hmm. and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it was the type of film that I think could really thrive in January too, because again, it at least guarantees something that is fun and weird looking um, and doesn't have a great deal of competition. And, you know, as we have seen, the movie's had great success so far. But uh, before diving into the movie, let's chat generally for a minute about just PG-13 horror, right? That's a kind of a a big elephant in the room when you're talking specifically about (laughs) horror. You have people that are, as with most issues, uh, on both sides of in support of or don't uh, appreciate PG-13 horror, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for you, like, how do you find PG-13 horror? Are you a fan? Uh, oh, a- absolutely. And I think I think the important thing to distinguish, too, with it is that, you know, to me, I, I think sometimes we talk about PG-13 horror like it's its own separate genre. Right. And, and, and I disagree with that notion, you know, because to me, it's just horror. <laughs> you know, the, the rating is insignificant to me. So I think that, you know, so for myself, whenever I see a PG-13 rating on a horror film, I I tend to think nothing of it because, you know, those are the movies that I grew up on. There are a lot of films that I love that are PG-13 horror, you know, like I, I was a late 80s, early 90s kid. So not to age myself, but, but, you know, I, I grew up on movies like Ghoulies or The Gates, you know, or Poltergeist. Uh, all of which are PG-13, and all of which scared the shit out of me as a kid. (laughs) I I mean, even Ghoulies, which, you know, to look back on now, and it's the silly movie, it has moments like this clown that just has a monster rip out of it that was fucking horrifying to me as a kid. (laughs) And so, you know, so I think that the notion, one, that PG-13 cannot be scary is bullshit. (laughs) And, And especially the idea, of course, that horror cannot be good when it's PG-13. I, I think it's crap. You know, I, I just don't agree with it. And I'm always curious about, you know, a lot of fans who's, who seem to have something against it because I would bet a million dollars that those are the movies they grew up with as well. You know, these PG-13 horror films that got them into the genre. So so it's like, why why was it okay to appreciate it then but now you need it to be R for some reason, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, as somebody that was traumatized as a child by Poltergeist, which is, as you said, a PG-13 movie, like there's no doubt that PG-13 has been successful and will continue to be successful. And I always approach these movies from the point of like, well, not everybody has the same origin story with horror, right? Not everybody mm-hmm. is going to have you know, older siblings or family members that are going to show them horror movies uh, well beyond what's acceptable, maybe in some instances to show kids, right? (laughs) Um, Not everybody has that origin story. Like I sort of had a little bit of that in coming to uh, appreciate horror, but for the most part, I was not inundated with a lot of like R-rated horror or what some people say is real horror, right? It was mostly Mm -hmm. films that you've mentioned or, you know, even getting a little bit older and thinking about other PG-13 movies that have come out within the last 10 years that have been really successful, I think, in sort of bridging that gap, right, between a vague interest in horror to, oh, these are a little more intense. These have a little more in store for like what, of course, more mature horror films will have, you know. Just recently, we have had films, of course, like A Quiet Place, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, even stuff like 47 Meters Down or going all the way back to like The Ring or the Insidious films. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that those are all films that do a really great job of capturing what's special about horror. 
And just because they don't have a great deal of, you know, graphic violence and this and that, even though they all have, <laughs> they all have a fair bit of that in them. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lack of gore or a lack of bloodshed isn't a knock against those movies. And to say that those movies would be even better if they had more of that, I've always thought is kind of just a, a fundamental misunderstanding of like horror in general, right? It's kind of a, a dumbing down of horror for the masses and saying, well, horror is only valuable based upon the buckets of blood and gore that are in, in a could, film. Could not agree more. I mean, so so as far as the gore goes, let me let me preface by saying I am a gore hound. I love good yep. gore. <laughs> you you throw good gore in the movie and I'm going to appreciate it, you know. Um, but I do agree with you in the sense that it is sort of a, a dumbing down kind of way to approach it, because to me, you know, <laughs> excessive amount of gore is kind of like, you know, a comedy that's a lot of childish humor, right? You know, like fart jokes and whatever, like you can still appreciate it. And, you know, there are those of us that are really into dumb comedies, you know, like Billy Madison. <laughs> um, but but it doesn't make it a good comedy to have childish humor like that, right? It is sort of the dumbed down version of it. And I, I approach horror the same way with gore and, you know, nudity or whatever. Like to me, that is just the the thing thrown in for us adults to kind of have more fun with it. Right. Um, but I don't think that that makes it a better horror movie. Uh, like you said, it's a misunderstanding of what horror even is. To me, horror is not gore and sex. To me, horror is, you know, that that feeling of dread that you get. Uh, which, you know, going back to Skinnamarink is why I love that. Like, even though there's not much of a narrative, it's all atmosphere and dread, you know, and that's what I loved about it. So, so I agree with you there. And, you know, I also think that it's important to point out, too, that like we've both kind of been hinting at here is that the most important thing about PG-13 horror is the fact that it is a gateway for younger fans to become more imbued in the genre. You know, like, like, like you said, not everyone has the same origin story. I was lucky. I, I grew up with parents who honestly kind of let me watch anything. You know, like my first horror film was Christine when I was three years old. So, <laughs> so, they, so they didn't really give a crap. But, um, you know, there are a lot of kids who don't have that. There are a lot of kids who are very restricted in what they can watch. And so it's easier for them to be able to access the genre when it is rated PG-13 or even something like Paranorman rated PG, you know. Uh, that's that's where they begin. That's how they come into the genre. And I always get so frustrated when we have these arguments about PG-13 versus R, because of course it's always coming from older fans. And I just always have the idea of like, what is wrong with inviting more people into the genre by allowing them to access it? Right. You know, why are we, why are we so against that? <laughs> Uh, I just never understood that. Like, what, you want this to just be your genre and no one else is allowed in? You know, I, I don't think that's the way to go. If anything, I want more horror fans. Let's get more people involved. So I think that that's definitely something that I co-sign. And, and, you know, I guess my only real reservation with PG-13 horror and, you know, with seeing Megan and getting into that has helped to change my feelings on it. Originally, I had felt... I wouldn't say super strongly, but it was something that kind of irked me about learning that some projects were conceptualized as being R-rated. And mm -hmm. then throughout the course of their production or development, or even in shooting in some instances, like with Megan, then they go from this conception of an R-rated film and then it ends up being PG-13. And historically, that had bugged me a little bit because it seemed like they were 
potentially undercutting the original vision of what was being, you know, thought up of and actually following through with in a project. But I think with a film like Megan, it proves that even if you're, it's something's originally written and shot as being R-rated, you have to trust the creatives that know whether or not what they have achieved is successful and how, oh, well, if maybe we pull back a little bit, you're actually not removing things that are integral to what makes this film work on its own, which I think kind of goes a little bit with what we've been saying, right? Is that you fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of horror if it's the all the value is in the bloodshed and the gore. And I think a film like Megan that had that, where it was going to be R-rated and, you know, they've talked now about there being a uh, potentially a director's cut or unrated cut that comes in the future. After sitting down with the movie and thinking about it for a couple of days, I don't know that additional kill scenes or more gore or blood in them would actually make me enjoy the movie more. If anything, mm. you know, I wouldn't change my rating of the film, but it would be something that, you know, like you, a gore hound, I can appreciate it even more, but I don't know if it fundamentally rewrites my appreciation for the film, which um, I think is surprisingly higher than what I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. You know, I and look, this is a nuanced conversation. You know, it's it, there. I do understand both sides of this part of it, you know, because there are examples of films that I think are hurt by, you know, by by being conceptualized as an R film and then sort of cut and trimmed and, you know, peeled to the bone in order to be released as a PG-13. Like one example that comes to mind right away is, you know, the the Black Christmas uh, remake where there, and, but but to be clear, you know, there are a lot of people that really love that movie. I didn't, you know, I really wanted to, and I appreciate and I appreciated what they were going for. But that is one where I felt like it dealt with concepts that were very adult and very mature. You know, uh, like like not to bum this this episode out here, but you know, <laughs> like like talking about rape and and mm -hmm. that sort of culture in college. You know, like that that that's very adult. That's not something that I think a 12 year old wants to watch a slasher film about. Right. Um, but, and so it became conflicting because you have very mature ideas like that. And then you're trying to water it down, you know, for a PG 13 audience. And, and so I feel like the film didn't quite know what it wanted to be in that case. In the case of Megan, I think the other side of this, the audiences need to understand is look, I don't want to generalize by saying every film, but quite a few horror movies that you watch have been cut, you know, including a lot of the ones that you grew up with and love to this day. They've been cut down. You know, it's a popular technique for uh, directors to shoot extra gore scenes so that they have something to cut when the MPAA comes to them and is like, hey, you need to cut this. It's a technique in order to leave in the stuff they really want to so they can say, hey, I cut this scene. So now I can have this scene. Right. Um, so almost everything you see is cut. And, and trimmed and, you know, less gory <laughs> than what was originally shot. So keep that in mind. But then also, you know, Akilah Cooper's come out and said that, yes, the script was originally gorier. The script did originally have more kill scenes. But the other thing to understand, too, is that sometimes it's not the studio cutting those things out in order to water down the film. It, it, they're cutting things out because they can't afford it. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, like I haven't read specifically what was cut 
but I can imagine, you know, there's uh, towards the third act where Megan is loosed upon <laughs> the convention, and I can imagine probably more people died <laughs> in that in that original scene in the script, right? Um, but when you actually get to having to shoot that, it becomes a conversation of can we afford to have this massive slaughter <laughs> in this convention or do we put that money towards other elements in the film? You know, uh, I, I forget what the name of the book was, but there's a, a book on writing horror scripts that, I've, that I always think of when it comes to this subject because they mentioned the idea of like, maybe you think it's really cool to have this scene of like hundreds of gargoyles that swarm a, a school prom and are just slaughtering everybody in the gym, right? But maybe you can't afford that. That's very expensive to shoot that. So instead, you rewrite the scene to be, you know, a couple of people attacked by a gargoyle in the hallway. Is it not as fun? Sure, but it can still be done effectively. And it's not about trying to water it down. It's about trying to shoot what you're capable of. So, um, so in the case of Megan, you know, I agree with you. I don't think that there's any additional kill scenes that I could have seen or additional gore that would have made the movie better. I think had you seen gore in the bits where I can imagine it probably will be, uh, would that moment have been, you know, perhaps a little more fun? Sure. But I think that the movie as a whole would not be affected because the movie as a whole itself is extremely entertaining, you know? So, so how much does a little bit of gore really add to that? <laughs> right. And I think also, you know, thinking about, being conscious of one's budget, you do have to protect the integrity of the rest of the film, right? You can't when, you know, I think there's plenty of examples out there from over the decades of horror films that clearly their 75, 80% of their budget went towards one scene. And there are just so many films where it's like, yeah, you know, it's not a very good movie, but it has this one amazing scene in it. And I think when you have a budget like this, which, you know, we'll get into sort of the uh, stats of this film, um, you do have to allow your budget to be allocated throughout the entirety of that film. So each moment's memorable rather than if you just have, let's say, one scene in the convention that has the highest body count, but then perhaps the rest of the film doesn't hold up in a way that makes the entirety of it entertaining uh, right. or to a degree where, you know, we get to halfway through the year and everybody forgot about this movie past one viral meme, which I don't think will necessarily be the case. But before we dive <laughs> into, uh, yeah, hopefully not. But uh, before diving into Megan a little bit more, Here's some uh, tales of the terror tape, if you will. So this film had has earned $95 million at the box office as of this recording against a $12 million budget, which is Goddamn. absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, and yep. actually, it made me think about um, the Child's Play remake that came mm -hmm. out in, what was it, 2019? And yes. how, you know, while not a failure by any means, that film was $45 million against a $10 million budget, um, which, again, is not something to scoff at, but... Just thinking about, you know, the difference between branding images, right? Megan is this new IP, whereas I think uh, with Child's Play, some fans couldn't quite let go that Brad Dorff wasn't going to be voicing Chucky, which was noticeable. But at the same time, I don't think it was personally like justifiable to completely disregard that film or to say right. like, oh, well, this couldn't be entertaining at all, which... I'm not well, as a massive of a Chucky fan, to be honest, but hmm. I still had a ton of fun with that movie. Yeah, same. And listen, Luke Skywalker did a great job <laughs> voicing Chucky, all right? Um, no, I, I think you're right there as well. That That is the 
I think one of the defining differences here is that, yeah, Child's Play is an IP, and you do always have the portion of the fan base that says, I will not support a remake no matter what, which, you know, personally, I think you're missing out on quite a few great films if you're going into it with that mindset. Um, And and Megan is an original. And let's just think about this for a second. $95 million dollars in a couple weeks for a January original IP horror film. If that does not tell studios that you can fund original horror films <laughs> to release in theaters, I don't know what does, you know? Uh, Cause I, the, the complaint that I hear all the time from horror fans is that, oh, it's all remakes and sequels, which is bullshit. There is a lot of great original content coming out, but a lot of it doesn't reach the theater. So I do, I do get where they're coming from because if they're not seeking anything out outside the theater, I that's why you're missing it, you know. Um, but I hope that this shows studios, yes, you can release <laughs> original horror in the theaters, and it will do well if you make a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's fucking January. It's fucking January, and it made ninety five million dollars. That's right. incredible. <laughs> I I have not uh, looked up the stats as I should have, but I would not be surprised if that is a genre record of some sort, uh, or at least making a short list of, you know, most successful horror films in January, because that is astronomical and thinking about that. But also, you know, even with that budget, you know, in today's world with everything being these massive superhero movies or these massive, you know, uh, passion projects from big name directors that easily will cost 200 million plus to make, the idea that you can make a movie that is as involved in the kills and just overall, you know, what is delivered in this movie for $12 million is, you know, it speaks to that Blumhouse method, right? I can't think of many of their films recently that have been over $20 million, right? And just the amount that they are able to really pull out of such a limited budget, but it's more about the creatives that are involved, uh, I think really speaks to, and you know, not to say Blumhouse always has a hit on their hands. They produce quite a lot these days that uh, <laughs> can be scattered sometimes good, in quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think they know with certain creatives when they sort of bring up an idea, no matter how uh, out there it might be, that certain creatives they trust enough to be like, hey, they will deliver with well, you well, know, this is, even this a minuscule school budget. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is where Blumhouse does it right. And look, I have my gripes with Blumhouse, quite a few of them actually, but... <laughs> Uh, but the thing that I will always give them credit for, and, and Jason Bloom credit for, even though I have my gripes with them as well, is that they they understand this part of it, which is that you can just put out original content when you are investing, you know, ten million dollars, twelve million dollars. Uh, that that allows the freedom to let the creators kind of play, right, and do what mm-hmm. they want. Because if the film is a dud you're not out, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars like you <laughs> yeah. are with these Marvel movies, right? Yeah. Like like a Marvel movie has to do well or Marvel's in trouble. <laughs> you know, in Bloomhouse's case, Megan could have been a complete bomb, doesn't really affect them whatsoever. You know, and, and I think that that is something important that studios need to understand and get back to uh, because we do have so many of these bloated budget films. You know, like what are, what are we spending $500 million dollars <laughs> On a movie for you know like that yeah. that's that's ridiculous <laughs> and it's often for something that feels very mechanical and uninspired because it ends up 
having so much money involved that you basically end up with 30 talking heads all kind of saying, well, it has to be this and it has to be this and it has to be this. Whereas something like Megan, you know, you've got a handful of people that are uh, putting all of the creative decisions in, you know, because not as much as on the line. So, hmm. so no, yeah, Bloomhouse, I think is definitely a template that more studios could learn from in that you don't have to drop, you know, everything you have into one film, hmm. spread it out. And you're basically kind of giving yourselves, you know, would you rather have 20, 20 small budget films that all have the potential to be a blowout blockbuster like Megan, or would you rather have one film that everything is riding on? You know, so so no, I agree. They they've they got it right <laughs> in what they're doing. Well, not only a commercial success, but also a critical success at that. I mean, mm-hmm. rocking a Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes certified fresh review rating at 95% based on 243 reviews, which Amazing. for a horror film in January, again, I think is probably unheard of. Uh, and it also has an audience score of 79% based on 2,500 plus reviews. Uh, we were talking a little bit about you know the creative power behind this film. Um, you know, it's written by malignant co-writer Akila Cooper, who also shares a story credit with James Wan for Megan. And, you know, I think that, again, it's more about giving creatives the outlet to do what they want and trusting in them, even if it doesn't have this massive budget allocated to it. You know, mm-hmm. I think I, I forget how expensive malignant was. It couldn't have been, I think, more than 30 million at the most, probably. But yeah, it, is it the wasn't type of too thing. expensive. Yeah, it wasn't too expensive. But again, it's more about letting people run with these weird ideas. And, you know, something like Megan, it's a film that, you know, clearly uh, Killer Doll is not a necessarily a new genre, but it's the ways in which that they're able to make that subgenre feel refreshing in a way that we haven't gotten a great deal of films like. Um, right. And so I guess in getting into a little more general about the film, uh, what is an aspect for you that stands out about Megan, you know, delivering this worthwhile uh, PG-13 horror film? Akila Cooper's writing. A hundred percent. You know, I, I forget who I saw say this, but I completely agree with it. And this is that Akila Cooper is, I think, a modern master of camp horror. <laughs> uh, between, between this malignant and Hellfest, I just think Akila Cooper gets it and has made me astronomically more excited for The Nun Part 2 because she is writing it. <laughs> I, I wasn't even a fan of The Nun. I like the gothic imagery of it in the setting, but otherwise, I thought it was a meh film. Uh, Akila Cooper has me counting down the days until The Nun 2 comes out because I know that it's going to be insane. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, no, she she is the prime element of what made this film for me is her writing. You know, when I, when I watch the trailer and you do have those moments of Megan doing her dances, which became all of the gifts and you know, all, all of the stuff that excites the TikTok <laughs> age. Um, <laughs> that pleases the algorithm. That, that pleases the algorithm. Um, when I saw that, I, I knew, okay, this is going to be something bonkers and fun. And, it, and it, you know, something that I think that uh, a lot of us would agree on is that the, 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 the 2010s through, two, through 2020 ha- has been very centralized around kind of darker, more traumatic, intense horror, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I love it. We got a lot of great films from it. But ever since 2020, and especially now, uh, I've thought we're kind of moving into a new age similar to the 80s 
where you just had a bunch of really crazy, bizarre, <laughs> uh, bonkers horror films coming out. And, you know, I think Megan kind of solidifies that for me in just the sort of ideas that we're letting run wild. And so when I, when I first went to the theater, you know, I knew this was going to be fun. But then you have the very first opening scene is this faux commercial you know, talking about like dead dogs and shit. And I, I don't remember, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember what the line was that made me just laugh out loud in the theater. But, you know, when, when you open on just this absurd faux commercial, I, I was just immediately like, okay, this is going to be even better than I thought. <laughs> it, it was very reminiscent of uh, RoboCop for me, right? The fact yes, that you have yes, these, these style like, humor. <laughs> yeah, this corporate styled humor, but also, you know, it really does set the stage for an element of the film that I didn't know was going to be as much of a focal point, which, you know, like I said, I didn't see the trailers for it on purpose just because I was like, oh, this looks wild and James Wan and uh, uh, Caleb are uh, attached to writing it. And mm. it was the type of thing where I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go see that on site. I don't need to know a lot about it. And to find that it very much is this satirical film that kind of takes the piss out of a lot of our current, uh, you know, big air quotes, tech gurus uh, yeah. <laughs> from some major corporations that will go uh, nameless. Um, but it is the type of thing that, you know, having something that is as bonkers and as ridiculous of a premise, but at the same time is making a commentary about our modern day that feels relevant, but is, you know, pointing things out and taking them to task, but at no point is the movie not trying to make you laugh or entertain you in a various uh, genre ways, right? And I think right. that that is a balance that it is an art form, and it had been not maybe not lost, but it had been pushed to the back burner for films that maybe some people would describe as like terms like elevated horror films or whatever kind of trauma horror films, whatever you want to call them. But I agree with your summation that we're returning to an era of horror that you know the quality has increased because of mm -hmm. all the creative talent that's involved and, you know, all the modern techniques and whatnot and bringing those stories to life. But at the same time, you're bringing stories to life that don't need to be taken, especially at face value sometimes, right? It can be right. lighthearted while still terrifying, but also, uh, you know, having something to say that doesn't have to be this, uh, you know, kind of like slamming on the brakes of your enjoyment, if you will. <laughs> right. It, it, we can have fun and be horrified and not be terribly depressed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, that again, that, that is something that I really love here. And what I love about Cooper's writing is that on the surface of it, the entire thing just seems absurd, right? You know, this four foot tall AI doll that, you know, is singing songs like titanium, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, like it's all completely ridiculous, but at the same time, you know, Cooper's writing is very smart as well. You know, it's very sharp and she is criticizing not just corporations and people like Elon Musk, which, you know, side note, fuck Elon Musk. Um, not only is she criticizing the so-called tech geniuses who are anything, but, <laughs> But, you know, also touching on exactly where we are in this age of tech and doing it better than the 2019 Child's Play, which I did enjoy. And I, and I enjoyed that element of it. But I think that it touches on this better because, well, the 2019 Child's Play was more of a kind of warning on allowing tech to kind of take over different elements of our lives, like, you know, self-driving cars and all that. Uh, this focuses more on how is this affecting the next generation? 
you know, how, how is this affecting our kids right now? And I thought that that was a brilliant piece of it in, you know, showing just how a kid like Katie, you know, becomes so enveloped by tech that it almost becomes a part of their existence. It's a piece of her that she can't just remove, you know, um, like the whole fit that she has in not being able to see Megan or bring Megan, you know, it's, it's very similar to taking an iPad away from a kid and being like, go the fuck outside and play soccer <laughs> or something, you know, um, it's the same kind of temper tantrum. And, and it, you know, we're, we're touching on an idea of like, is this good for kids or is this an addiction that, that we're building in them and teaching their brains, you know, to be so addictive like this? <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, you put it really well in terms of, you know, child's play explores the, uh, the infiltration of technology to all aspects, but Megan really does capitalize on the emotional aspect of that, which again, yeah. you know, when you think about it, we can describe this premise as being, uh, you know, bonkers or ridiculous in some ways, but at the same time, like this would be the next step of our over-reliance on technology. And, you know, Again, with something like ch uh, Child's Play that focuses on the infiltration of technology, the main difference in Megan is that it's not an iPad. And, you know, the iPad that you see at, whenever you go out to eat at dinner now, you see tables of kids with iPads and nobody's talking, right? So yeah. it is this more like dopamine machine for them just to be quiet. But now we get to see that you know, extrapolated into an emotional connection. And, you know, that emotional connection, that over-reliance would be something typically that would be between obviously a child and their parent that gets phased out over time. Right. And now the idea that, oh, what if that never gets phased out? And you start to see that with, of course, uh, Katie and her over-reliance on that. And the fact that her relationship is altered with Gemma and to the fact that Gemma has now become redundant in the child's mm -hmm. eyes and saying like, well, you know, things like you're not my mom. Why would I listen to you anyways? Uh, and you don't even like have anything to do with me most of the time because you're so transfixed with work. Um, right. I think that the element of this film that surprised me the most was just how well developed that human element is between Gemma and Katie and just seeing, you know, the parental relationship and how that gets in some ways infiltrated by technology, but also it gets almost, um, I guess the vision for that would be, you know, you of course are going to hope your child is less and less reliant on you the older they get. But what if that reliance is never given a reason to, you know, be weaned off of? Um, mm. And I think, you know, just thinking about it in terms of where does, how does this affect youth 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line? Like that is a genuinely disturbing concept, right? I think even in where we're at now, when you see people's over-reliance on technology, it's funny to laugh at when you're at dinner. It's like, oh yeah, it's kids playing Candy Crush instead of conversing. But you know, the long-term ramifications of that, I think, are going to be uh, more and more apparent. You know, the further we get from this period in time. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a conversation worth having that I think not a lot of us are willing to have. <laughs> you know, and and I I think the funny thing is, uh, just to kick this off with, is that you know, of course, there's going to be members of gen z who would hear you and i discussing that and be like oh you fucking boomers you know <laughs> like and, and and to give them credit in that sense you know every generation has their thing that infiltrates society that they go oh my god how is this gonna affect the next generation you know 
Uh, like, like, I mean, for fuck's sake, people were worried about, you know, computers and VHS and, you know, just any little, any little new technology, there is always that sort of older generation that's like, oh, I don't know about this thing that I didn't grow up with, you know. Um, but I do think there is a discussion to be had with it in this case, because, you know, for example, I, I was at my in-laws this past weekend and, uh, we're all older, you know, we have a niece that's about 13 or so. Um, but a good portion of the weekend was all of us sitting in the living room on our phones or iPads and nobody talking, you know? And, and it's just sort of a thing of like, well, what are we even visiting each other for if we're not going to have a conversation? <laughs> this could have been a Zoom call. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, or a text message. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so I, I do think that the film's really smart in how it touches on a lot of this. And this is what surprised me as well. That's not in the trailers is that human element of it. You know, uh, the trailer didn't give away that uh, Katie's parents die in the in the beginning and that. Uh, Megan essentially becomes a replacement, not just for Gemma, but for them as well. And, you know, I, we do need to, I think, talk about that fact that parents a lot of times now, you know, are doing what you said and using the iPad or the phone as a way to, as you put it, shut the kid up, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, we've got cars with TVs in them now, just so the kid shuts the hell up, you know, and I just there is a danger to that and i think in being raised to where your parent is essentially irrelevant you know and that's what megan ends up becoming for katie is this parent figure this figure to look up to this figure who teaches her everything you know kids are always asking questions they're always asking really dumb questions you know like what like why do birds fly why is the sky blue you know whatever and it, even though those are questions that we as adults are like oh my god are you serious uh there there's an importance in being able to connect the child to you as an informative source you know as, as someone who teaches them and raises them and prepares them for the world and when that element of being a parent or an adult figure for a kid is taken out what are you at that point <laughs> you know um and so I, I thought that was brilliant to kind of show how Megan becomes everything, not just the parent, but the aunt, the the teacher, the the caregiver. You know, she becomes everything to, like you said, Gemma is just, she might as well not even be there. <laughs> you have that really great moment, right, when they're outside eating lunch and uh, Gemma's like asking her to eat her food. And basically, she's only going to listen to uh, to Megan when Megan tells her like, Oh, uh, well, we're just going to keep talking about this instead to the point where, you know, uh, Gemma decides that she's going to just shut Megan off, which, you know, will become a uh, an issue and not an option later in the film. But it is right. that type of thing where, you know, you get to see the monster basically turn on this mad scientist, if you will, um, and you see the creator lose control of the creation. Um, but giving it this social context or parental context, if anything, I think makes that that trope, if you will, of horror or just of, you know, genre films in general, it makes it even more disturbing of a concept, I think, because there is some aspect of reality in that where, you know, not to the scale that, you know, you have an AI doll killing people, but everybody has probably been in situations with a parent where the parent begins to lose control of what their kid is doing or saying or this or that. And just to see that, 
you know, built upon in this re- truly nightmarish scenario. Um, I think it gave this film a foundation that, you know, I would always still describe this as a killer doll movie, but I think when you say that it's just a killer doll movie, people are like, oh, well, it's just going to be a bunch of gory kills and deaths when actually yeah. the foundation and the commentary in this movie, I think, is surprisingly sound, again, for something that is largely being portrayed as just a genre film. Um, And I think that also the film does a good job of taking, again, you know, tech companies to task, irresponsible tech companies that are looking for short term term fixes. (laughs) Yeah, all of them, basically. Um, But, you know, taking these short term fixes for situations that they don't know the true long term implications of. Um, Also, yeah, like the implication of um, exploiting children, right? Because at mm -hmm. one point when they want to roll out the Megan doll, what do they do? They use Katie's story. And they have that horrific video of her, you know, recalling that her parents died and how upset she is. And then the tech guru guy just comes out and he makes like a quip about it. He's like, Megan's even great for people that don't have dead parents. And it's just like, (laughs) that line is hilarious. But at the same time, you know, it's not unbelievable that some, some, you know, stick up their ass tech guru guy would say something like that. Uh, That was very believable, even if it was a hilarious moment within the uh, context of the film. Uh Oh, 100%. And look, again, this is what I really love about this film, aside from the goofiness of it, is that it, it is a really great recontextualization of the Frankenstein story, right? You know, you mentioned the the mad scientists and their creation turned against them. And it, it's a similar tale here where, yeah, you have Gemma create this thing that ultimately, you know, is turning against her. And it's all because of that fact that there is no, there is no, thinking of what is this going to mean just you know like what is this going to mean long term i just want to do it i want to accomplish it <laughs> and you know it goes back to that that sort of jeff goldblum jurassic park you know quote like you didn't you didn't stop to think if you should you only cared if you could you know or, or whatever he says and, yeah. and it's the same thing and and i love that we do kind of get that played throughout the movie where you do have you know, almost a lot of voices coming into Gemma's head of, you know, we have to think about what this will be down the line. You know, like you're training her to do this. Is that a good thing to be to be having Megan do? Is that a good thing to be having Katie interact with? You know, and the response just keeps on being, it's fine, it's fine. You know, it's going to be okay. There's no there's no thought process of what this could mean a decade from now, right? Um, and so, and I think that also adds into the idea too, that the other fear here is, you know, not just what is the effect of having this technology for children down the line, but also the trust that you're placing in it. You know, it, it forces us to pose the question of why are we putting so much trust (laughs) into technology and ai you know this this unliving thing that really has no care for us you know an ai does not care (laughs) if it hurts our feelings or something like that does not care how it affects us it only does its job right which is what megan is doing megan's job is to protect katie she takes that as a protect katie at all costs and is killing people and does not care what the ramifications of that are. Um, and I think that that touches on, you know, a fear of parents and, and what they're doing with leaving kids with, you know, iPads and the internet and all of that 
is you no longer have a check on what is your kid experiencing? What are they getting into? You know, like I think of that really awful story going around or not story, but I think of that this really awful thing happening right now where, you know, uh, I think it's mostly teenage boys that are being targeted, but, but all kids, uh, that are having these instances where, you know, they chat with someone online, the person convinces them to send a nude photo or something like that, you know, thinking they'll get one in return. And then they use that to, you know, bribe them in some sort of way. Like, you, you know, you have blackmail to get them. Yeah. Blackmail them. And, and, you know, that that's something that's occurring on the internet. And I think that that, you know, Megan kind of touches on that where you're leaving your kid with this machine, you know, and, and, why are we putting that kind of trust into it? I mean, like when I, when I first see the scene where, you know, Megan is going to sleep with Katie in her room and it's just this big, creepy mechanical doll. It's like, really, really? You trust that that doll is not <laughs> going to like smack her in the head while she's sleeping or something like just the amount of trust being put into it is insane. <laughs> also, if I was going to have one of those in my house, it charging state would not be sitting up in the dark. That thing would be like in a, in an electric coffin or something. So yeah, I don't yeah. have to see that, like <laughs> confuse it with like a large uh, pile of laundry that scares you at two in the yeah, morning when you get yeah, up. Yeah, no, for sure. I, that, that fucking thing's going in my basement <laughs> in a box, you know, like I'm, it's but, not sitting in my kid's room to terrify me every time I walk in. <laughs> but no, I think the example you gave is a good one. And, you know, it makes me think about, there's like a meme that I see all the time online where it's like, um, how traumatized everybody was that uh, came out of the age of the birth of the internet, where it was like my parents thought that I was watching, uh, you know, sports videos or something, but I was really watching beheadings on the internet. And it's like, right. you know, not that it's, I come from the age where it was like, yeah, man, I had plenty of friends that had stories like that about, yo, did you hear about this fucked up shit we found on the internet? And that's a byproduct of, you know, parents putting us in front of technology that they didn't truly grasp themselves for mm -hmm. whatever their reason might be. Um, it's the type of thing that it's like, yeah, back in the day, the wild west of YouTube or whatever, have, not having filters, not realizing what being exposed to certain content, you know, nobody should be watching beheadings, but certain content in general, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's the type of thing that being exposed to things at too early of an age can have impl implications and impacts that nobody can foresee because some people can't even conceptualize this being a portal to some of the worst things imaginable. <laughs> well, and I think that's a great point too, is that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily an irresponsible act of the adult, it, you know, because I, I sort of look at irresponsibility as knowing better and doing it anyway. And in this case, you know, there is something to be said for like, technology is just very difficult to grasp when it first comes about. And so it is understandable that, you know, a lot of adults put us in front of, you know, the internet when you and I were kids, when it was first coming around, because they're like, I don't fucking get it. I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like what? You just go online and read stuff like, all right, or you chat with people. Okay. You know, like they, there, there didn't really seem to be an understanding of what that could lead to. And, you know, my wife actually was telling a story the other day to her parents that I thought was pretty relevant to this, where you know, when we were, when the internet was first around and we had shit like Ask Jeeves, <laughs> uh, part of our computer classes back then were, you know, doing research with Ask Jeeves, you know, we had different prompts of like, well, search for this, you know, and um, I think there wasn't even an understanding at that time of like, you're putting kids on what is essentially Google now and allowing them to just search for whatever the hell they want. <laughs> in class, you know, it just, it just speaks to that misunderstanding of the technology. <laughs>
And, you know, I think what really sells the elements we've been talking about are those two leads, right? We haven't talked much mm-hmm. about Violet McGraw, who, of course, of uh, the House on Haunted Hill fame, uh, and Allison Williams, who's been carving a nice little slice of uh, genre films in the last, you know, five or so years. Still one of my favorite psychopaths in Get Out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, Get Out, whether it's that, whether it's, um, what was it, The Perfection, which is mm-hmm. a film that I think a lot of people seemingly have forgotten, but, you know, she but does a great. really great job of, you know, inserting herself into these genre films and delivering, you know, really complex characters. I think, again, for when you think about some of the films that she's been in, people have this tendency. It's just how some people perceive the genre, but to be rather flippant about them. But, you know, whether it's Get Out, whether it's The Perfection, whether it's this, you know, Allison Williams brings a really fantastic um I suppose more so obviously in this one, a motherhood quality, if you will, um, Mm. to this movie that really makes that relationship feel far more organic and just genuine, I think, than a lot of – that can sometimes be a sticking point, right? For a lot of these movies, it's like, well, all the elements of this that are great are the more horror-focused elements or the monsters or this or that. And sometimes the human element gets left behind. And with a film like this, with the foundation being – some of these subjects that we've been talking about, you know, it's great to see that the proper amount of development and talent was allocated to, you know, those two lead roles. hundred percent. No, Allison Williams is great. And I, I agree with you. She does bring that kind of, if not motherly caregiver sort of element to it, you know, where you do feel that there's this genuine sort of wanting to be there for Katie, uh, that Williams is able to kind of, bring to the script and i will say you know i i felt that this element was a little uh underdeveloped in the writing but I, and that's no offense to cooper you know it's just they they probably had to cut whatever but but i do think that williams elevates what's in the script you know to bring more of that emotion to it and then violet mcgraw especially as katie really impressed me you know that this is this is a young actress that is dealing with really complicated subject matter you know uh with 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 having to connect you know the death of her parents to this doll and everything going on there and that whole scene you know where they end up selling the idea of megan uh to the tech guru (laughs) where you know megan comes in and has that conversation with katie about her parents i mean mcgraw's performance in that is just so effective that you know, I, I found myself tearing up. I'm like, oh, my God, this is devastating, you know. Uh, but then it ends up being so, like, sweet and touching. And, you know, there's a lot of mo- emotions going through that scene. And so, yeah, no, I thought the leads captured it really well. And and honestly, you know, I think we got to give a shout-out to the performance of the voice of Megan, Jenna Davis, who uh, did a great job with that as well, you know, being able to balance that – that sort of genuine sweetness, that genuine care with alternatively, you know, uh, intimidation and <laughs> intensity. <laughs> yeah, she does a really great job, I think, of taking Megan's personality and getting to see it, you know, slowly but surely shift into, you know, the more self-aware she becomes, she takes more ownership of direction with what she's going to say. But I think that they'd find a really great balance of her being menacing without being, you know, overly quip heavy, if you will. I think that Mm -hmm. if you're going to make a killer doll movie, what's the first thing that you could find yourself doing is, oh, well, let's make him like Chucky, but 
a little different. And it was nice to see Megan's kind of transition from being this very kind of just cold delivery, calculated delivery to being menacing and being threatening without, you know, having to turn the temperature up in the room, if you will, with what she's saying. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different kind of quip in a sense, right? Because, you know, Chuck, Chucky has his little lines, you know, <laughs> uh, where, where they're just like funny jokes or whatever um, and puns and stuff like that. Whereas Megan, you know, it's more sass. Like Megan, mm-hmm. Megan, I think, has this really charming, in a sense, kind of sass to her where you know, like, uh, like, like Gemma is, or Gemma is talking about, you know, wanting Megan to shut off or whatever. And Megan's like, excuse me, I thought we were having a conversation like that. <laughs> like yeah. that shit is hilarious because it's coming from this AI robot. Uh, so it's funny, but at the same time, it's very uncomfortable and intimidating because of Davis's, you know, delivery of the lines. <laughs> um, so no, I, I, the writing for Megan was like the character of Megan was phenomenal um, I, I do really love that Cooper didn't slip into more of what we've seen before and kind of brought a different sort of element to it. Yeah, I think that if they had gone a more traditional route with Megan just being like super aggressive right out of the gate, it would kill the pacing of the film, right? Because the fact that she kind of is escalating her sassiness, if you will, to mm-hmm. what Gemma's saying or commanding, right? It does allow that mystery or that kind of gray area of, oh, when can I step in and like kind of uh, pull the fire alarm, if you will, and kind of alerting everybody to the true terror that is Megan and what we're kind of, she's kind of like holding back from doing because she needs more information or if she doesn't prevent uh, provide the right information, people would say, well, you're overreacting. And right. so I think that that scaling is really great overall for the pacing of the film, which, you know, is not a terribly long film. Um, but I think that they do a great job of sort of sustaining that gray area before, you know, everything truly goes off the rails in terms of, no, Megan's a problem and we have to deal with her now. Um, (laughs) But like you said, with Jenna Davis doing the voice of Megan, leads into my next topic I'd like to talk about with Amy Donnellan as Megan, who did the the physicality of Megan, right? And Mm -hmm. so I was really impressed, I think, with also making a killer doll that is, you know, slightly larger than our traditional killer doll, right? I think that most of the time when you think of killer dolls, you think of the pint-sized slashers, right? Yeah. But having Megan just be a, a slightly bit taller, uh, you know, about the size of a small child, you know, that adds a new sort of pool of capabilities for her to have. Um, how did you find that they sort of were able to bridge that gap between having the killer doll grow more, but also, you know, have her carry out kills that... Um, had to be within the confines of that PG-13 rating. Uh, well, so first of all, I agree. I loved it. You know, I, I do love that we get this larger menace, so to speak, because, uh, because you know, first of all, I, I thought that the the questions going through social media of like, who do you got in a fight, Chucky or Megan? You know, for for me, it was a given. It's like it's fucking Megan. Yeah, she, <laughs> Megan would destroy Chucky. Are you kidding me? She's fucking. She's a four foot tall robot. <laughs> Chucky's got nothing against that. Um, you know, but but aside from that, like you know, I, I really liked it because having the sort of human performance to it, I think, also adds uh, a reality to it that makes it scarier. You know, I think that there, I think there is something scarier about Megan when compared to, you know, something like Chucky, because it's this unnatural thing that is moving like you or I, you know, it, 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 it's vaguely human, but not, 
And I think that that's always really uncomfortable, you know, when we see those sorts of things, like it brings me back to like all of these AI videos that you find on the internet, you know, where they're, I, I remember the specific one where they were testing facial expressions and they're just like really horrific smiles, you know, and it's this thing of like, it's, it's human, but not. <laughs> um, so, so that part of it made me uncomfortable. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, the the scariest image that I have from the original Child's Play isn't, you know, Chucky's face contorting or something like that. It's the image where Andy is, you know, crawling backwards in the hallway and you have a human actor in the burnt Chucky bodysuit walking towards him. And the and the reason that that's the scariest image for me is because there you can sense the human in the suit you know and it, and it again it makes it more real it makes it more intimidating chucky seems larger in that moment you know he's hovering over andy and so i think having a, a human performer for megan was a great choice and as far as the violence you know i i i, I guess i guess like you know it's it's fun because you do get the sense of like Megan can actually do these things. You know, no, no one's going to go into Megan, I think, and question, you know, well, how is Megan killing all these people like like they always do with Chucky? You know, people always say, oh, I would just kick Chucky and I'd be fine. You know, and you can't you can't really say that with Megan. You can't just kick Megan and she's going to go away. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I, I think if anything, just like we were going talking about with the PG-13 and R rating, would I have liked to see Megan get a little more blood on her hands? You know, sure, that would have been fun. But again, I think that the human performance is enough to really sell just how terrifying this thing is. <laughs> I think also the film in general for PG-13, again, to talk about being an outlier, perhaps even amongst its peers, like it is a film that does not really hold back, I think. And, you know, there's oh, not a, gr yeah. it doesn't have this massive body count or anything, but like, I think about that scene in the wood with the boy that's bullying oh. Katie, right? I think that, you know, in the trailer, you saw a brief bit where, you know, it's implied she rips his ear off, but seeing that scene play out in the film, like that got a what the fuck out of the audience that I was seeing the film with. And just like seeing how long it lingers on there. And it's not necessarily super gory, but it is this disturbing sort of almost body horror moment where you get to see, you know, the earlobe elongate far more than it should. And it's like, I don't know that that scene is that much better if you see mm. it actually come off because it is such a disturbing moment of lingering on that. Um, right. And then, you know, it has the payoff where they go to the lengths of having a kid die, no matter how much a shithead they are. Uh, that is the type of thing that, you know, you kind of have to respect from a filmmaker that's willing to go to the extreme in a movie but at the same time, you know, is does enough, I think, that, you know, you can win the audience back or doesn't overly rely on that because, you know, for some that would be a hard sell on a film, maybe not as hard as a sell of the dog getting killed. But uh, <laughs> it is the type of thing that, you know, to include a child getting killed in a film and not have people immediately check out on it. Mm -hmm. That's a, that that is a skill, I think, of a director that's able to incorporate that element but not have people completely, you know, shun the movie from that point forwards or oh, you know, for sure. at least and, most of them. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that this is another area where Megan separates itself from the quote unquote uh, watered down PG-13 horror films is that Megan is not afraid to break taboos. You know, I mean, think about what our first two deaths are. First, it's a dog. 
mm. which is always difficult to watch, <laughs> uh, even if it's only implied, which in this case it is. I don't think we ever saw anything on screen with the dog. Um, and then the second death is a kid. And and like you said, it doesn't matter how much of a shithead of a kid he is. It's still breaking a taboo to kill a child in a horror film. We used to do it all the time. <laughs> Uh, but but we haven't really much for for a couple decades now, and so I think that you know just those two moments by themselves I think tell the audience we're not the we're not the quote we're not the safe PG thirteen horror film that you think this is. We're still going to scare you and make you uncomfortable and challenge you. You know, and I, so I, I love that, that that those end up, that that ends up being what happens in Megan early on here, because after that, anything goes, you know, I, I, I always hate to phrase it as like, I enjoy it when a kid or a dog dies in an oracle because I don't <laughs> in a way, but, but I always appreciate it in the sense that when that happens, I know that from that point on, I cannot fully expect what's going to occur because anything goes. <laughs> I think that that's a really good way to put it. And that is, I think, a true talent of a filmmaker where they're able to incorporate something that kind of like throws you off your axis of what to expect in a way that makes the rest of the film, even if it never truly lives up to that moment again, or includes something as you know drastic or as taboo as that. I still think that that is, again, a quality of a filmmaker that knows how to get longevity in the pacing of their script, right? Because you are incredibly uncomfortable after that moment oh, yeah. uh, because, you know, you've essentially think, oh, maybe the rule book's been thrown out, especially with how late in the film that happens. Because, you know, the next PG-13 example that does something like that would be uh, a quiet place for me, right? Mm. Where at the very beginning of that, what do they do? They kill off a kid. But it's in the very beginning of the film. With Megan, you know, the pacing of this, I think that that kill coming when it does kind of like, realigns the audience in terms of like, oh no, this is going to get pretty fucked up pretty quickly. And yeah. that it makes the rest of that second half that much more tense and uncomfortable. Again, even if, you know, you don't have a litany of uh, child deaths in the wake of that. But no. uh, I, I think also though, you know, the details are more important than actually showing more gore or something along those lines. 100%. Like the, the power wash scene, right? I think that it's incredibly disturbing to see somebody get a nail shot through their hand or their wrist. And then, you know, the implication of what happens to somebody's face when you shoot them with whatever PSI water pressure is, right? Mm -hmm. You can just imagine the mess that that would make. And yeah, in a director's cut, I wouldn't say no to just seeing that face get split apart. <laughs> but I think it's the way in which that scene is framed and how it plays out that is more important at the end of the day and makes it equally disturbing, if you will, well, or and, perhaps and, more disturbing. Yeah, well, this is the important discussion, I think, that always needs to be applied to when we're talking about gore, uh, is that the power wash scene, I, I can almost guarantee that the unrated cut is going to show us a little bit of what happens to that face, right? I have to imagine that that's one of the moments where the gore was cut out. The thing you have to ask yourself is, what's scarier? What I imagine in my head is happening to that woman's face <laughs> or what I ultimately see. And I think the answer is always going to be what you're imagining in your mind. Uh, there, it's a very different scene depending on when whether you show the gore or not, because by not showing it, you're stuck there with the terrible image in your mind of what must be happening. Uh, as opposed to if you're going to show that gore, I think it's a different reaction because it becomes a reaction of, not being scary or frightening us, but sort of making us giggle at like, 
oh my god that gore is so cool you know uh it's it's a different effect so it always kind of depends on what effect do you want you know um so i do i think it was uh i want to say it was keel cooper who said they thought that the film was scarier without the gore in it that they had cut i, I don't remember quite maybe it was the director but um but whoever said it i i agree with them i think it probably is scarier because you have to imagine these things and maybe it would be a little more giddy or fun if you saw those things. So, yeah. And I think it, like you said, they, that is definitely a scene that's going to be expanded upon if we it, get that, uh, that it unrated director's cut, <laughs> um, which, you know, if anything, to your point, I would almost say like, it's better to see a PG 13 cut that leaves it to the imagination. And then if you want to do a revisit, it would be the thing where it's like, Oh, well let's, you know, crank the volume up on that a little bit. Like that's not an option I would ever say no to. Um, But again, like even if we never did get that unrated cut, I find it hard to hold it against the film that it didn't show us that moment in, you know, as in much grisly detail as perhaps part of us would like, because Mm -hmm. as you said, you know, it is that much stronger when you have to imagine that and leaving it to, you know, your brain's own devices to kind of piece that horrifying moment together. Right. Like I think a good example is uh, think of a movie that you know, Megan pulls a lot from, which is Wes Craven's Deadly Friend, you know. Uh, you could argue that, I really like Deadly Friend, but you could argue that an issue with that film is it didn't quite know if it wanted to be frightening and dreadful or if it wanted to be kind of campy and fun, right? Uh, because you have a lot of moments that are very uncomfortable and very tense and very eerie. And then you have moments like the Deadly Friend throwing a basketball at an old woman's head and watching it explode into a million pieces, you know, (laughs) not scary at all, but holy shit, is it awesome? And so, and you know, so you have to imagine like, okay, let's say deadly friend had a moment where, you know, the robot killed the old woman, which again is what's happening here. It's killing the old woman neighbor. Uh, What if they were killing the old woman neighbor, but you didn't exactly see how they die. It's a different effect than watching her head explode from basketball. So, (laughs) um, so no, yeah, it's again, it's I, I can't wait to see the unrated cut, but I think it'll be a different effect in those moments. Sure. Yeah. And uh one other moment that we need to talk about is that finale. That finale I absolutely loved. And you know, I saw it with one of my roommates who's I would say he's half in, half out with horror, right? I can convince uh, him to go see some stuff. But uh, like that finale, he was basically like hooting and hollering with me yeah. at just how fantastic that was of not only, you know, the more traditional sort of what you would expect where, you know, you have this power tool fight, if you will, uh, with the doll. But then, you know, and I have to give credit where credit's due, my buddy uh, Harrison Abbott, who's a journalist, uh, labeled it as such as the best use of Chekhov's gun uh, in the recent few years. The fact mm-hmm. that, you know, you get to see Bruce who comes out swinging at the end and kind of saves the day thanks to uh, Violet's character, you know, getting to grab those gauntlets and then basically ripping Megan in half. Kind of finale moment I loved of that duel between them um, and just well, like how just hilarious cheer. it is. Yeah, you just yeah. cheer the entire time because it's what you've wanted to see basically since Bruce was introduced. Right. And and you almost sort of forget about it, right? Because Bruce is initially just, you know, I, I completely agree with your friend. It's a great use of Chekhov's gun because you sort of, because in this case, you know, like deep down, I think a lot of us know, okay, Bruce is going to come back somehow. <laughs> but you forget about Bruce and it's done in such a way where it's not just like the thing being brought back to use, but done in a way where it becomes a power moment for Katie as well. 
of like, that's it, bitch. You're going down, you know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, just such a fantastic moment, especially seeing Megan's face, like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, that finale was great. Like, there, you know, this is one of those moments where, like, would I like to have seen the expansion of what happens at the convention to really elevate that finale to something more chaotic and fun? Absolutely. You know, taking it back to the house is a little more uh, traditional, I guess, is maybe a way to put it. It's mm-hmm. and so so it's not it's not totally unexpected, but having that fist fight between the two robots, I think, is a great way to go out. It could you know, that couldn't have been any better. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the. If the finale had unfolded in the convention, it would lose while, you know, the body count would be significantly higher and you could get, you know, this mass body count kind of kill probably. Mm. Um, You know, returning to the house has a lot more intimacy because of, you know, the space of that workshop, but also it doesn't allow the catharsis of that moment to, you know, for a moment be taken away from the leads in the film, which I think is um, very, very important to, you know, them having that moment. Um, Mm. And also a moment that I forgot that uh, comes right before that, which is probably one of my favorite moments of the movie, even as as fleeting as it is, is the moment when uh, Gemma throws water on Megan and Megan begins to like short circuit. And she has these kind of like, it's almost like she's in a stasis field where she's in these sort of like strange, sudden movements um, when she almost looks like she's kind of like phasing like a wraith or something. Mm. But uh, like such a fantastic moment that was genuinely terrifying uh, in a way that I don't think we've seen a killer doll before, though. We've probably seen killer robots do that. But yeah, it's a great way to incorporate the the fidgety movement. You know, we we as fans are always a little unnerved by that. Like I remember... Uh, the early 2000s especially really started to incorporate that with ghost films where ghosts would just suddenly jerk around and move really quickly. Uh, so so that that was definitely fun to see that used in this instance because you're right, we've never really seen that with a killer doll film. So. I guess my one of my only real complaints with the film in general is we didn't have more moments like that. I would like it to yeah. get a little weirder perhaps, if you will. Um, you know, <laughs> for, for an already may- pretty weird film, but... <laughs> It's just that, you know, seeing the ways in which that they could take that, you know, that doll and its capabilities and just show how distorted it could get so far removed from its initial intended programming. Like mm-hmm. you have that crazy crawl run that's genuinely scary. And then you've got that moment of, uh, you know, short circuiting and just seeing the ways in which Megan could begin to interpret the capabilities of her shell or programming yeah. for, you know, the killer intent that uh, she holds within. No, I, I do agree with that because you're you're essentially introducing an element that's not really invested upon much, you know, because you do have like, yeah, that run. That was another thing in the trailer where people saw that and they're like, oh, fuck, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this, this chick running like a fucking goblin, you know, like that, <laughs> like that, that's frightening. It's it's creepy as hell. And and so that and the robot is very effective. But I, I do agree. We didn't quite get enough of that. I think we could have benefited from more of that, like. You know, what? what is stopping Megan from crawling on the walls, you know, or yeah. <laughs> or something like that? I, I do feel that we didn't get to quite see enough of her true power, you know, in what she's really capable of, um, which, which, again, that might be a budget thing. I don't know, but. Sure. Yeah. You know, a few more moments like that peppered throughout the film that don't necessarily have to be tied to kills, but just seeing that, you know, she's beginning to go off script, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. with her capabilities. But as we know, there's a sequel 
uh, in development. So, you know, oh, yeah. maybe with uh, the monu- I'll say the monumental success of the first film, they'll get a bigger budget. They can return and they can truly mess around with uh, with Megan in some new and terrifying ways. Um, but before we wrap up, was there any other moments in the film that really stood out to you that I kind of glossed over or? Uh, not exactly a moment, but the other thing I did want to touch on and what I think is important here is that um, the, the thing that I think has been really effective for Megan that maybe hasn't been talked about much, or at least not that I've seen, is that, you know, Megan, I think, is a perfect sort of horror icon for now because the, the horror genre always struggles to have good iconic female villains and you know most of the time when there are they're reduced to like ghosts or something like that right, right. and so when you think of like the the killer dolls subgenre of course there's chucky you know king of the killer dolls or whatever uh but we've but we've rarely had a successful attempt at a female version of that because you know what is annabelle annabelle's a quiet doll that never does anything right <laughs> Um, and then you have Dolly Dearest, which is basically just a Chucky ripoff. And so, you know, we, so we've never really had, I think a good quality, like actual character character, uh, of a, of of an iconic horror female doll villain, you know? And so, and so I think that that's, to me, that's, that's part of the success of Megan is that not only do you have this now kind of female killer doll villain that actually is you know a a character but they're not like we were talking about before they're not just a a quippy ripoff or you know something like that this is a character that actually has like sass and fights back you know and and is very um like confident in a way and you know demanding or or whatever and it's you know it's like it's something where I hope that there are a lot of kids, you know, that identify as female that look up to that and go, yeah, that's my, that's my horror icon right there. You know, yeah, uh, just this really like strong, tough, <laughs> not afraid to, you know, give as well as much as they take, you know? Um, and, and I think that's a big part of why it works. So yeah. It has their own sensibilities and personality that don't feel like it's just kind of cribbed from, something that you've seen and, you know, the worst sin of all, if you are going to crib from something, make sure it's a better version. But it's nice to see that this is a character that, as you put it, you know, isn't exactly like a quip machine like some, but has their own sassy personality that we haven't truly seen with, you know, this female horror uh, icon that's, you know, just kind of come out of the woodwork. And I think is, again, it's a testament to the film in general I think the film will stick with people more than people will perhaps expect it to. Uh, certainly, you know, like for me, it was exciting to find that there's a good bit of humor in the movie because, you know, humor and horror especially is something that I think is uh, very seldomly done well. And so for a film like this to, you know, have that humor be this foundational aspect of the movie, but at the same time, that is not undercutting any element of the film. It's more just a compliment to it, um, mm-hmm. I think, is a really strong indicator for how you can approach films such as this. And even if, you know, maybe one or two scenes, it feels like they were made just to kind of like get that uh, hype machine rolling online and whatnot. At the same time, I think the incorporation of it into the actual film and seeing that scene play out again was done in a way that it doesn't feel like that was the sole origin of you know, the marketing or whatnot. But I think that was brilliant too. You know, like I think it was uh, Richard Newby that wrote about that, about how, 
you know, about how Megan really tapped into the sort of TikTok culture. Uh, and, and, you know, there are, I think, an older generation of horror fans that are irked by that or, or annoyed by it or think it's stupid or whatever. But it's like, you got to understand, we're, we're trying, like, it's trying to appeal to the next generation. And the next generation sure. is social media and TikTok and all that stuff. Um, just like horror is always done, you know, like, like poltergeist, you know, touch the next generation by being around television, which was a new thing for us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so no, I think that was a really brilliant element and probably has a lot to do with why the film went game busters as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I think just in that moment specifically, I think though, when you actually watch the film and you learn the significance of that dance, right? Because who teaches her that dance? It's uh, Katie, right? And so I think- right. it's not just a throwaway it, moment. It's actually been exactly. a movie. Exactly, yeah. So I think that that's where I was like, oh, nice, this isn't the throwaway moment. This is actually significant to the characters and their relationship, which ends up being such a focal point of the film. And uh, yeah, I think we've established it's, the film is better off for it. Uh, yeah. And it definitely, I think, break, maybe not breaks new ground, but it breaks ground in a way that I don't think people always- People sometimes think like, oh, genre films aren't capable of those moments or something like that. And as we've gotten to the bottom of, uh, Megan is definitely uh, proving that that can be the case. And yeah, something yeah. that- uh, Megan's given a finger to that concept. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man, it was great having you back for the uh, new year and just back on the podcast in general, man. It's been a minute. Uh, but uh, I would love for you to share you know, your Twitter handle so people can follow your work at various sites that you contribute to. Yeah, no, it's been awesome being back. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Killer Critics. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, I think, at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. I, I can't quite remember, but <laughs> I never really use Instagram. Um, and yeah, you can follow my writing uh, either on my site at KillerHorrorCritic.com. You can find all my reviews there. Uh, I also write a couple different columns for sites like Daily Grindhouse or Manor Vallum. I'm a contributor to Dread Central uh, every once in a while, hopefully more this year. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find all of that. <laughs> well, perfect, man. Thanks again for joining me to chat about Megan. It was a blast. Yeah, no, this is great. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.